0: Uh, this is going to be a a, uh, a message where we're going to be in several different uh, places in the Old Testament as we begin this new series. Uh, today's lesson is called an, uh, The Author of History, and we'll be flipping around to different places, so I hope you have nimble fingers this morning and can follow right along with us. Eventually, we're going to be studying together the story of Ezra and we have to lead into that. And this is kind of a lengthy message, so we didn't have singing, so you're ready to sit now. You haven't been in church for uh, two months, and you're ready to to pay attention. Here's what A.W. Tozer says to start. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So ask yourself this, what does come into your mind when you think about God? What mental image, I'm not talking about picture, but what qualities tend to rise to the top about God as you think of him? In fact, someone else, actually Tozer continues, that, that quote is pretty famous, but here's something he says right after that, that the gravest question before the church is always God himself. All of us tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward what we really think about God. This is true not just of us as individuals, but also of us true of the company of Christians that compose the church. He finishes by saying, always the most revealing thing about the church is their concept or their idea of God. Note what Tozer says, is, it's not important what the culture thinks about God. I think we as Christians have to stop pointing the finger at all that culture and society does and start looking inwardly at how we respond to truth. How I personally, Andy, responds to truth. Many times we like to accuse rather than analyze our own selves. The Christian, not the unbeliever, must think rightly about God for the church to grow and succeed. We know what the culture thinks about God. They have vast and different opinions. But what is it that we, what is it that Grace Baptist prioritizes about God? And not just our confessional and creedal statements, what we recite, we believe that God is one in, you know three persons existing from eternity. I mean, we can say all those things, but what are our actual thoughts? What is it that we really think about when we think about God? Are our thoughts about God lofty enough? Are they high enough? Or are we like the people accused in Psalm 50, verse 21, when God says, You thought that I was a man like you. Even the church likes to bring God down to our level. We must not do that. So in thinking about what to preach on upon our return to church, I've been drawn to this passage in the Old Testament, a story of God's dealings with his people towards the latter part of the Old Testament timeline. So we want to realize not necessarily what Ezra's doing, what Jeremiah's doing, what these other people are doing, but what God is doing for our goal is discover more truth about God and then think rightly about him. 2 Timothy 3.16, Romans 15.4 gives us the encouragement to do this. Many pastors focus only on the New Testament. Yet Scripture tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Even these passages and lists of dates and lists of people are profitable for all things, for our teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 does not offer a caveat that certain passages are more important than others like red-letter Bible people, like the words that Jesus said somehow carry more weight than the other words that he says. Certainly, the words of John and of Matthew and Mark and Luke take greater precedence than Leviticus and Numbers and Chronicles. That's not the case. Wherever Scripture speaks, God is speaking. So we must listen and profit from that. Romans 15.4 speaks very similarly. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What we're going to talk about today is meant to encourage us, embolden us, edify us, give us hope and understanding. Why should we study this portion of scripture? What are we going to learn about God? Just in the story of the last little bit of 2 Kings and moving into Ezra, you have all kinds of attributes of God being brought to the surface. His eminence, his sovereignty, his power, his glory, his faithfulness, his grace, his goodness, his righteousness, his supremacy, his holiness. We must not look at the Bible as if it's just a, a section of different stories about different people and we can learn like, to be brave like Daniel or Or be uh, pure like Joseph, instead of looking at what God is doing in the story and learning more about Him. In fact, when you attend Joel Osteen's church at the beginning of the service, you hold up the Bible and you say, "I am what this Bible says. I own what this Bible teaches. I I I will do what it. I mean, it's all about me." But the Bible is a book about God. He is the main character, and He is the author. God is the author of all history. He has eternally existed in a completely self-dependent, satisfied state. He did not make us because he needed us or desired some sort of fellowship with creatures that he just wasn't happy enough by himself. He created the world for his own glory. In his sovereign purpose, he he has enacted a story where the purpose is his glory. Everything that God does is for his glory. Listen to what one person says about this. To exist in this story is a greater gift than any finite creature can imagine. To be a part of God's story is a wonderful gift. I've often thought about this. What if I was uh, created a crayon or a hamster and had no ability to really be a part of the story of God or to have fellowship with him? I thought about that even this week as I was playing with Maisie a little bit our dog, and say, and thinking this dog has no concept of God, will never have eternal fellowship with God, and I thanked God that I had the privilege of that, that this creature did not. You ever think about what a privilege is that God gave you life and established you in his story? This person goes on, we may be so ignif- insignificant in God's story, but we have been given a speaking part and scenes that are my own. Scenes where the audience is simply the author himself. And these are scenes that we often flub. God has said, here's your part in the story, and oftentimes we screw that up. This is what the author who wrote this little sentence finishes with. But to hear and feel and see and taste the idea of God, that is enough. To, to, to have the ability to have fellowship with God, 1 John chapter 1 talks about that, brings the greatest joy. That's what he says. He says, I've written this that you might have fellowship with us, and the fellowship is with his son, and this fellowship has been given to us, and I'm saying all this, that your joy might be full. So it's a wonderful thing to be part of the story of God, whatever part he's given us to play. God has set the stage of this story back in the Garden of Eden with two actors, Adam and Eve, who failed their scene, and every person who's come after them has failed as well. But even in the midst of the failure of their scene, God at that very moment in Genesis 3.15 said that he would bring about a deliverer, and this is all part of his story. The happy conclusion to the failure of our first parents is that a deliverer would come and rescue us. God then chose a new man, Abraham, a new actor, to create a nation that would reflect his glory to the world. And you understand, if you understand your Old Testament history, that Israel's history has pockets of people who followed, but generally speaking, these are people who also failed their scenes over and over and over again. And through that, he sent prophets and others to proclaim that that promised deliverer would one day come and be the climax of God's story. He promised a new covenant, a new David, a new heart, and finally a new paradise to us. If you were to look at Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13, there are two great preachers of God, Stephen and Paul, who announce this story as they give the gospel. In Acts 7, Stephen goes all the way from the choosing of Abraham right up to the the time to the people that he's talking to and how they always have rejected the prophets who have come to them. And the climax is that Christ has come and you have killed him. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 13. And their message, both Stephen and Paul and and our message is this, that there is a great and glorious God that we must know and reckon with, and he has been working throughout history, and he is the meaning behind everything, the explanation of everything, and the purpose for everything. Romans 11 says it this way, for of him and through him and to him are all things. God is the author of this story, He has given us a role to play, what a privilege that is, and perhaps we think that what we do is insignificant and doesn't matter, but even 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, even if we eat and drink, we do all to the glory of God. Perhaps most soul-strengthening in all of this is knowing that God will keep his word and fulfill what he promised and do what he says. I hope that excites you. I mean, it's it's just a thrilling beginning to what we want to talk about today. That God has invited you and created you to be a part of his story and you can fulfill a wonderful role in that. Now, let's look at 2 Kings. I want to pick it up here. Let's actually walk through God's story or the timeline of the story that he has laid out for us in his word. And some of these things you'll understand and it'll give us kind of a context for where we're coming to. In about 4,000 B.C., God created all things, and then 2,000 years later, after the era of the patriarchs, uh, God chose Abraham to be his chosen individual from which he would start a great nation. And the Abrahamic covenant in chapters 12 and 15 of Genesis outline exactly how God promises to do that. And that is just a, an add-on to Genesis chapter 3 where God says, I'm going to send that promised deliverer to stamp out the snake's head and crush him. In 1440 or 46, around there, that is when God led his people out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus and brought them to the Promised Land, where in 1043 BC, God established Saul as the first king. This was a result of God's people wanting to be like the other nations around them, which is going to be a theme for the rest of their history. They want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king, and God grants them that request in the evil king, Saul. That kingdom of Israel only lasted about a thousand or a hundred years when division came under the reign of King Solomon. This is when the nation of Israel, and forgive me for being dry and technical here, but it is going to give us a context. The, the nation split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. In, uh, 721 BC. This is when the nation of Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So all that's left at that period in 721 BC is the nation of Judah in the south. And, and they had some godly kings. The north had, had, I don't know that they had any godly kings. My study was primarily in Judah and I, I, I don't think there might have been one godly king in the north. Just a series of ungodly kings until God finally brought the punishment from the nation of Assyria. Now, When, after that happened, we have this, let's see if I can get it all up here, we have these three waves of uh, invasion from the nation of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of these names will be a little bit more familiar. In 605, that should say 597, 605, 597, and 586, those three times is when Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies in and began... And initially in the first wave, and then the second wave, and finally in the third wave in 586 is when the nation of Judah was just ultimately destroyed, the the ark was taken, the temple was burned, just a total destruction, okay? Um, So that happened in three different waves, I'm going to walk you through that. And then in 539, King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, and at that point he decides to let all people, not just the Jews, go back to their nations and establish their religion, and Ezra uh, appears, the prophet of Ezra appears in 485 B.C. Now, during that bottom line there, during the first wave, second wave, third wave, Cyrus and Ezra, the three major prophets that we want to examine as far as God's sending, and this is, the, this is the grace of God. We want to, again, focus everything on God. The grace of God is that even through the rebellion of his people, God always had prophets there speaking his word, sharing what God expected and desired. And those are the three primary uh, prophets that dealt with the nation of Judah at that time. So, we want to begin today by looking at the end of this reign in the southern kingdom. Okay, so we're already past the northern kingdom. Our study is going to begin um, down, in the, down in the second line, where the first, not, even just prior to the first wave of invasion, with the last five kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And all that is said during that time, much of what is said is through the prophet Jeremiah. And Maybe, maybe like me, this is one of the most. This is probably the most unfamiliar territory in the Bible. Would you agree that for you, it's the most unfamiliar territory in the Bible? This, this is not the Gospels where we kind of understand the story. The letters we kind of get, even even Genesis up through David, we kind of have a grasp of those stories. But when you start to get into these fuzzy, all these kings and kingdoms, and maybe even going through this, is the, the brain is swirling a little bit. But uh, part of the reason it's difficult is because you have the history books in the Bible. And then you have the prophetical books, and you kind of don't understand, well, where do these prophets fit into the history books? And if you look at a chronological Bible, it's really helpful because they insert all those things. One of the real difficult things is that as Jeremiah is the main prophet on this bottom line, the book of Jeremiah is not even in chronological order. If you read Jeremiah chapter 1 up to what is it, chapter 56, 57, somewhere in there, if you read that in order, you're not reading a history Jeremiah, I mean, in fact, like chapter 24, 25, 26, there's 11-year difference, and 26 is actually the first. It's, so it's, you understand the confusion that can happen. Most of us, we read a story, and we read front to back, and that's the story. Jeremiah's not so. So it's a fun and exciting challenge to try to figure out when in history God is saying certain things to his people and for what purpose. Jeremiah's primary message is this. If you've been confused so far... Jeremiah's primary message is this to the southern kingdom. God is rebuking you for your unfaithfulness. God is rebuking you for your unfaithfulness. The book of Jeremiah includes charges against other nations, but it's primarily a rebuke to the nation of Judah, which has rejected God and lived in unfaithfulness. God is bringing a charge against his people. What is it that he was angry about? We won't turn to all these passages in Jeremiah, but just to give you an understanding. He was angry because his people were placing confidence in the wrong people. They were trusting in Egypt. They wanted Egypt to come and rescue them during this time in that second line there where Nebuchadnezzar was coming down. They actually turned to Egypt for help instead of turning to God. Jeremiah 2, 36 and 37 expressed that. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8 goes with that too. Listen, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is one of the rebukes God is saying through Jeremiah. You people are trusting in a human solution for a, for a human problem when the only solution is, is me. So stop turning to yourself and to man to solve the problem. And if we put it in our context, we have serious problems going on. A human solution is not going to solve this problem. Only the gospel is going to solve this problem. He's, mad, he's angry with them for that. He's also angry with them for putting their confidence in other things instead of God. This kind of goes along with it. He says, uh, this is familiar to us in Jeremiah chapter 9 when he says, The Lord says, Do not let the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast who boasts boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that, the, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. So these first initial problems that God has is you're not only having confidence in the wrong people, you're actually putting your confidence in the wrong things. Stop boasting in your wealth, riches, smarts. Think about America. Oh, we've got the people to solve this problem. We've got the scientists. We've got the lawyers. We've got the politicians. All those things are nothing. The only boast we have is in God, that we know him. This is what God delights in, striving after knowledge of him. And in this study in Ezra, we're going to learn much about him. Another problem that God had was their idolatry. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. The worship of idols in Jeremiah 10, which we'll come to. Jeremiah 5 is their uh, adulterous relationships. Jeremiah 7, their injustice by oppressing aliens and orphans and widows. Jeremiah 9, they were lying slanderers. Jeremiah 17, they broke the Sabbath. And above all things, Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 9 says, in all of this, they were hypocrites. They claimed to be doing righteous things, when in actuality, their hearts were far from God. God is angry with his people, yet how guilty we have also been of those very same offenses. We cry out to God for forgiveness and mercy, and read this blessed verse in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So we're going to walk through the last days of the southern kingdom, that bottom line there. And in the middle of that walking through, we're going to bring up a couple of Jeremiah's prophecies. And the goal is not just to understand history of the Old Testament, but to see God at work in his story, revealing himself to us. Okay? So we're going to, go, we're going to walk backwards, the last five kings of the southern kingdom. Fifth to last is Josiah. We're a little familiar with him. He's the fifth to last king in the southern kingdom. He reigned in 640 B.C. for a period of 31 years. His story is told in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Now most of us are familiar with Josiah primarily because of Sunday school when the priest Hilkiah finds the book of the law which has been lost. Everybody remember that story? You look A little bit dazed. I, I, I hope that's not because I'm not making sense, but uh, in Second Kings, they find this book of the law. Josiah tears his robe and clothes because he realizes how far they've been from obeying the law. And he sets up these reforms. But these reforms were only outward. They did not change the heart of the people. This occurs in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Now look at Second Kings 23, finally, verse 28 through 30. This tells us about the end of Josiah. Now, this is the last godly king of that nation. The rest, the final four, are not going to be a fab four. They're going to be a disgusting, rotten, evil four that are going to lead the nation into this captivity because of their rebellion. So imagine the people who had had this godly king for a period of 31 years and made these outstanding, at least you know, externally, made these reforms. Now he decides... In 2 Kings 23, 28, he doesn't decide, but he, he is going to die. Verse 29 says, In his days Pharaoh Nico, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. Josiah went up to meet him, and Pharaoh Nico killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. His servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Now if you also want to write down or look at this later, Second Chronicles also tells this story in verse 25 of chapter 35, and it says Jeremiah wrote a lament for this king. This was a period of mourning in the nation. In fact, in other places in the Old Testament, when things are bad and and, and going very wrong, they say something like, The morning was like that of the morning when when Josiah died. Josiah apparently thought that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, was coming up to make an alliance with Syria. He went out to meet him and he was shot by archers. Very difficult and sad time. Now we're going to add to that in just a minute. Taking over after that, is Jehoahaz. That's not his picture. He only reigned three months, so we don't really need to discuss him very much, but that's Jehoiakim, so we're down to four and three now, and those are the years they reigned and the period of time they reigned. Jehoahaz is only marked by this statement in Scripture, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> would you like that to be your epitaph in Scripture? He was imprisoned by that same Pharaoh, Nico brought to Egypt, and he died. What happened is Nico and the nation of Egypt decided to start influencing the nation of Judah, so he said, we're going to make Eliakim the king so here's here's the here's the history you got Josiah then you got Jehoahaz and Eliakim his sons they take away Jehoahaz they make Eliakim his brother and then the king and then changed his name to Jehoiakim Jehoiakim then was taxed by Pharaoh Neco said, uh, you're going to start paying us. And in 2 Kings 23, verse 33 to 35, you have it open and can read it, he decided to tax this the people in order to pay the tribute to Nico. Think about this. Think about what a terrible and tragic time this is. 31 years, you have this godly king, Josiah. Any of the righteous remnant in Judah would say, praise God, there is a godly king on the throne, right? That's what we would say. Uh, Imagine if a believer was elected president and what remained president for 31 years. There would be people in the country that would have never known what it was like with an ungodly leader. Now that godly leader dies, and this vast mourning takes place in the nation, and immediately his sons, who are evil, which is a story for another time, how a godly king could raise evil sons... They take over, and evil, evil immediately comes upon the people through Egypt and now through this taxation. So your godly king's gone, and you're being heavily taxed in order to pay Egypt that they might not come back and attack you again. This is a terrible and tragic time where the people were burdened. They were led by a wicked king, and God's judgment, which had been predicted on his unfaithful people, was beginning. God said, I'm angry with you for your unfaithfulness, I'm going to bring in the nations to destroy you. And here's the beginning of that. You can imagine the mourning that was going on. Now, hold your place there, because I told you we've got to go back and forth to fit in Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 26. This is what I'll call interlude number one. Okay, I'm going to intersperse the prophecies of Jeremiah in the history. So what I just explained to you, Jeremiah 26 fits right at that very moment. Does everybody understand? Just help me so you know I understand. Okay, so Josiah's dead, heavy taxes. Pe- the, the, it's like the beginning of birth pains, so to speak, like the Bible says, about the beginning of tribulation. And now Jeremiah has a word from God to those people. Put yourself in that position. Jeremiah has a word from God. We say, oh, great, a word from God. In this terrible time, let's hear it. We've got to read a lot of it. Jeremiah 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So now you understand the history. and Now you can read this. And follow along with me. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is God' last king number three, the son of Josiah, this word came from the Lord. Praise God, a word from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. This is God to Jeremiah. Go in, go in there and let him have it, Jeremiah. It may be, They will listen, and every one turn from his evil way. Then I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, here's the message. So so he's saying, Jeremiah, go in there and give it to them. Maybe they'll repent. Here's Here's what I want you to say. Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now don't look. What are they going to, how are they going to respond? Oh, could you imagine us in that moment? You would hope your response would be? You would hope your response would be what? What? yes, Lord, we will do that, we will obey, we will repent, we will turn, because we don't want that judgment coming upon us. Instead, when Jeremiah, verse 8, had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak, the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. How dare you say that we will be like Shiloh? Shiloh is a reference to 1 Samuel, chapter 4. Remember this, when Eli conked out and broke his neck because the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines and the whole area was uh, you know, destroyed. How dare you say this is a moment like that? Now, Jeremiah was spared. We're not going to read the rest of it. It goes up to verse 19. But Jeremiah was spared. Just look at verse number th- uh, 13. This is a reiteration of the message. So therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster he has pronounced against you. What a, what a beautiful message that is. And it really teaches us something about God. And that's the point. Okay, the point is not to say, oh, now I can figure out all the history. The point is to say, what am I learning about God in this moment? Okay, what do we learn about God? First, God is hopeful. God is hopeful that his people would repent. In verse number three, these words are from God's own voice. It may be they will listen. Think of the hopefulness in God there. It may be. That they will listen. Now God, of course, is omniscient and knows all things, but he's expressing to us in a way that we can understand his heart for people. It may be that they will repent. He's hopeful. I want to tie that into what he also said. He sent the prophets to them how? Remember that word? He sent to them urgently. There is an eagerness in God to uh, to see his people repent. He desires that, verse 3 and verse 13. This is what God is hopeful for. He is hopeful that evil people would repent Think about this, he is giving them the chance to avoid the judgment that he is prescribing to them. If you will only do this, if you will listen to the words of the prophet and respond, I will relent of that judgment that I have predicted. But, last thing we learn about God from this interlude, I will bring down the hammer if you don't repent. This is not like, well, boys will be boys and I'm going to allow it to go on. The opportunity is there. I am eager and hopeful that you will repent, my dear people. In fact, we're going to see it later, but I'll mention it right now. God oftentimes refers to the nation of Israel as his inheritance, his treasure. And so he refers to them later in a different passage like that. He is eager that they would respond so that he could relent of his judgment, but the reality is the judgment will come without repentance. Now, this is something wonderful to learn about God. This is his, we know he's the same. This is still his demeanor towards his creation today. This is still his heart towards his people. God today is offering a chance for people to repent and obey his ways. 100%. And he's saying to them, my heart is that I'm hopeful and eager that you'll do that. 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, but He desires that all should come to repentance. Acts 3.19, the message that Peter gives, Repent therefore and be converted, that times of refreshing may come for the Lord, and that your sins might be blotted out. This is God's position towards the rebels that He has made. He is an eager, compassionate God. He is, he is ready to forgive. Micah 7.18 Who is a pardoning God like you? First John 1 John 1.9 He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But the reality of it is if we don't re- repent and respond in the right way He will bring His judgment down upon us. There are people today who may not grab the pastor by the collar and say, you will die for sharing that message, but they might as well. They might as well say, pastor, you can go to hell for telling me anything about my life. And people have responded to me like that in the past. And you look online at Christians now who are promoting a gospel of peace in this tragic time, and they are just hammered. Like we don't want to hear that message. They basically are responding the same way the priests and the prophets did with Jeremiah, taking a hold of him and saying, "You will die." And it was only by God's grace that Jeremiah was spared because he still had more of a role to play in the story. The sovereign author, God, protected him. I mean, how do you respond to this good and loving God? I praise you, God, for being a faithful and a God who is eager to forgive me, ready to forgive, but will bring punishment if it is not so. Let's go back to Jehoiakim, okay? That's interlude number one. Let's go back to Jehoiakim, right? This is the king who heard that message. I mean, Josiah dead, people taxed, judgment come, and Jehoiakim and part of his officials are saying, we don't want to hear that message. They do let uh, Jeremiah go. They actually kill, if you re- continue reading in Jeremiah 26, they actually kill another prophet named Uriah who prophesied the same things. Now, if you compare 2 Kings 23 and 24 to Daniel 1, you'll realize that God is beginning now to move the actors in his story. Can we do that? Let's look at Daniel 1 and 2 Kings 24, just so we can now follow what's happening. So I know these are difficult, sometimes difficult things to walk through, but man, I'm just encouraged at what God has for us. 2 Kings 24 and Daniel 1. Now, that prophecy that I just mentioned, Jeremiah, will you repent? Because God wants to forgive you. That happened prior to wave number one. Okay, so we're talking maybe, and it's hard when the numbers go backwards. And again, that second wave should say 597. I must have cut and paste that. five ninety seven. So 605, 597, 586. So we're talking like 608, 609, three or four years before that first wave is when the message of Jeremiah 26 fits in. The people did not repent. They wanted to kill Jeremiah. They didn't know what God said. And so God did exactly what he said. Now, I said at the beginning that the principal, uh, the principal pleasure of living our lives in this story that God has made is that God will always keep his word. Sometimes we don't want him to. Like in this situation, I'm sure the people didn't want him to, but he did. And he begins to bring the king Nebuchadnezzar down upon him. Look at, let's look at Daniel first. Daniel 1, 1, Okay, so this, this is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So he's going to reign for 11 years, but in his third year, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now hold on, right there. The Lord gave, well, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in his hand and took some of the vessels. This is, this is um, wave number one. This is the first time. Jehoiakim is going to still be allowed to be king. Look at Second Kings 24. He's still going to be allowed to be king, but under different circumstances. Second Kings 24, verse 1. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent some more people, etc., um, etc. Et now, here's what's happening. In this first wave, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and says, Jehoiakim, uh, you're going to be a vassal king. In other words, you're going to be king in name only, but you're going to owe your allegiance to me, Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to put a tax on you too which they did, and he paid it for three years, he said, until he finally rebelled. It was during this first wave that Daniel and those friends were taken to Nebuchadnezzar, and that, that story in Daniel about the vegetables and the, and the fiery furnace, that all occurs right here in this time frame. Uh, but this is the first wave of his attacks, and for three years Jehoiakim is going to begin to pay this tribute. Now three times Nebuchadnezzar would come, 605-597-586. Now we're going to look at what Jeremiah has to say now between 605 and 597, and then we're going to wrap this up. So go to Jeremiah chapter 12 now. Two more interludes. Okay, we're going to have interlude number two, and then interlude number three. Okay, I wish we could cover the whole history and get to Ezra today, but there's way too much because I want to lay the groundwork for what Ezra would have to deal with when he came and brought the people back to Jerusalem. Okay, so you understand in, in our timeline. If we, I should have went back to the timeline here real quick. Let me go back. Um, Jeremiah 26, the message of repentance, comes before that first wave. Now I'm going to show you two of the chapters. There's about five of Jeremiah's chapters that occurred between those eight years of uh, between first wave and second wave. Jeremiah chapter 12, interlude number two. I would say that we could title this interlude, Jeremiah Complains and God Responds. Jeremiah Complains and God's Responds. So good. This is so good. In Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah is going to ask this age-old question, God, why do the wicked get away with stuff? Why do the wicked prosper? And they are. Babylon's wicked, coming in and conquering us. And Jeremiah's righteous and doing what God has said, and he's facing some of the persecution as well. Here's how he starts his complaint. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? I guess we could say, Jeremiah is saying, God, I know you're right in all things, but could, could you explain why the wicked get away with stuff? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? We still have that question today. So relevant. We think that too, don't we? Why do the wicked seem to thrive when righteous people suffer? Here's what he says. You plant them, talking about wicked. You plant them and they take root and they grow and they produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. These are religious people who say they love you and they don't. But you know me, Lord. You see me and you test my heart towards you. In other words, I'm not like that. I'm faithful and I'm still suffering. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. Here we have a personal confession from Jeremiah to God. And this is so precious. Why do the wicked prosper? Jeremiah, why must I suffer? God, I know you are righteous. I know you are sovereign, but your ways are hard to discern. And Jeremiah is asking what we often may feel. Why must we who are obedient struggle while the the wicked flourish? We could ask ourselves, well, why would the clay ever talk back to the potter? Yet God in his mercy allows this and even responds with great kindness. What does he say? Verse number five, God speaks to Jeremiah's complaint. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? You know what God's saying here is something that might not be real encouraging to Jeremiah. Basically saying, Jeremiah, you're racing men, you're striving with men, and you're finding that to be difficult wait till you start racing with horses. He says, you find it convenient right now. You're in a safe land. Wait till you come into the thicket of Jordan, which was known for hyenas and lions and all kinds of... What, what, Jer- what God is telling Jeremiah is, it's bad now. It's going to get worse. God says, in, the, in, in this story that I've written, this is my sovereign choice right now to punish my people. That's difficult for us to hear sometimes. Many Christians think that we can usher in kind of God's peace and God's reign through, through our own actions, but God in his sovereignty is, is saying to Jeremiah and maybe even to us that there's more trouble on its way. You better buckle up and endure, Jeremiah, because my plan is for further difficulty. And this is a bit distressing. Yet sometimes we may be treated unfairly, and people may discomfort us and, and cause an offense to us. And, the the answer may be, there's more of that to come. That's what Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent for others, though I am loved the less. God's encouragement sometimes is not, okay, hey, hang in there, it's going to get a lot better. Like the prosperity gospel preachers of our day. Sometimes the message from God is, it's hard and it's going to get even harder. And our approach to this must be like Jeremiah where even though we have the privilege of complaining and bringing our complaint to God, we still say as he does right away in 12 verse 1, God, you are righteous. You are right in all that you do. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Continue what he says in verse 7. The I in this passage is God. He's still talking to Jeremiah. He says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I just mentioned that to you. This is what he uses as far as a term for the nation of Judah. They are my treasure. But I have abandoned them. Why? Verse 8, my heritage has become like a lion in the forest, lifting up her voice against me, so I hate her. This is God saying that. My beautiful treasure has turned on me like a lion raising its voice against me. So, I have every right to bring the hammer down. The religious leaders in verse, well, he also in verse 9 calls them a hyena and almost like birds of prey. God is saying, they're like vultures and buzzards that are attacking me, God says. Shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. This is a, this is a, um, a charge against the religious leaders, the shepherds. They trampled down my portion, they've made it a desolation. This is is God in all of His honesty saying they deserve what they're getting. Right? You see that? They deserve what they're getting. Because they have turned on me and I have done nothing wrong. God makes two promises to Jeremiah in verse 14 and He makes those promises with the word pluck. One's negative, one's positive. Verse number 14. Here's the, here's the, the... Conclusion of God's response to Jeremiah. The Lord says, concerning all the evil neighbors who touch the heritage. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. The evil neighbors who come and touch my treasure. I will pluck them up from their land. That's negative, And I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. That's positive. And after I have plucked them up, this, this has got to hit you with all of the force that it's meant to hit you with. After I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, same thing he said in Jeremiah 26, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear my Baal, they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Here, God is unveiling to Jeremiah his plan, saying, uh, concerning those nations that have come in and attacked Judah, that you're complaining about, i got plans for them. He says, i got plans for them. I'm going to pluck them up. Negative. Think about plucking up weeds, we think of negative. I'm going to take them up and punish them. And I'm going to pluck up the nation of Judah that's going to be up there in Babylon in the exile, and I'm going to bring them all back. I'm going to let them flourish again. If... They obey me, and you know what else God does in this circumstance? He even offers the chance for those nations that attacked Judah to repent and become like them. In other words, an invitation to the Gentile nations to be saved. Saying if they, he's talking about he's in this verse in verse sixteen, he says if they will diligently learn. He's talking about those other nations. If they will learn the ways of my people, if they will assimilate into this. Uh, I hate to use the word, but if they will assimilate into this religion and believe in me and follow me, then I I will build them up too. God is so wide in His mercy. He's going to punish those people for taking away the nation of Judah, but then He's going to say, here's another chance for you to repent and become like my people and become my treasured possession. How great is that? Just phenomenal. He's telling Jeremiah, listen, I will take care of Babylon, but I will still show them compassion. Here's what we here's what let's just kind of give some summary. I've said some of these things, but let's give some summary. We learn that God is righteous, that he is right in all that he does. I, I mentioned that. We don't have to say it again. But God does not forget. You know, Jeremiah in this complaint, usually complaint is when we think God has forgotten. You think about Isaiah 40. Uh, verse 27 to 30, where uh, the nation says, why has my God, God doesn't see what's going on. Have you not heard? God, 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 aren't you caring for me? Have you forgotten? And God did not forget Jeremiah. God is using Jeremiah in the story just like he said he would. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah 1.10, he says, I'm going to use you. He uses the word pluck. I'm going to use you to pluck up the nation. Now he's saying here in Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah, I'm using you in the story exactly the way I predicted I would use you. I'm not actually forgetting you. I'm remembering you and bringing about the purposes that I want through you. So be encouraged, Jeremiah, that even though you're going to preach and weep and no one's going to respond, you're going to be thrown in the mire, you're going to be taken to Egypt, your life is going to be void of any godly response to your preaching, God says, I got this, and I'm using you in this part of the story the way I want because I am the author and you are the character. And sometimes we get that way with Jeremiah, like, We get like Jeremiah with God. We say, God, why are you doing it this way? We look at our story and we wonder, God, why are you using me in this way? We start to wonder and question and complain. We must affirm God's righteousness even in our complaint and then realize that God is unendlessly compassionate and merciful. I mean, even when people don't respond, that does not change the character of God. What a beautiful thing to consider. That God, even though he's going to punish the nation of Babylon, is going to give them the opportunity to repent. Last one. Interlude number three. I think it says interlude two at the top. This should be interlude number three. It's two chapters back, and this is where we're going to stop. We're going to be halfway through on our introduction on the way to Ezra. I'm encouraged by it. I hope you are. Jeremiah 10. Last thing. We're just learning about God. We've learned a lot of different things about God already. He is eager and anxious and wants people to repent, yet he will bring the hammer of justice down he is a righteous, compassionate, merciful God, faithful even when we are faithless. And this is the ultimate, this is again during that, between that first and second wave where uh, the people are beginning to uh, see God's judgment come. So here's Jeremiah 10. We've got we to read this. So if, if, I, if I titled the other route, uh, interlude number two, uh, Jeremiah complains and God responds, this is the one true God, the one true God. And let's read the whole thing. This is encouraging. Uh, This is what I was studying, Linda, with you when, when we were texting on Friday. This is so good. Hear the word of the Lord that he speaks to you. Again, these people are troubled and here God has given them another message. The first one was personally just for Jeremiah. This one is for the whole nation. Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. The customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. This is, this is so great. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil, neither is it, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O oh Lord. You are great. And your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations, for this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarsus, and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen in the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and His nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It gets better. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Same word, treasury. The Lord of hosts is his name. Praise God. I want to remind you that included in Judah's unfaithfulness, as I mentioned at the beginning, was their idolatry. And this is what God is speaking to right now. Idolatry is always a problem of the heart, and God is always tearing them down. It's a powerful message that Jeremiah delivers. For us, we tend to picture, as Americans, we tend to picture the Jeremiah 10 idols, the Isaiah 40 idols as some statue that's carved and people bow down to it. We tend to maybe think of an image that is crafted with silver and gold and and people actually giving obeisance to it. And so we don't understand that idolatry is a problem of the heart where we give our affection that only belongs to God to something or someone else. Again, for Judah, the problem was that all the other nations had idols and they wanted to be like the other nations. And we, we think to ourselves, like the scripture says, those people are stupid and foolish. And again, instead of looking at ourselves and understanding our own pride and materialism and our trust and achievements and comfort and our arrogance, money, reputation, career, all these things can become our idols. And we give to them the affection and time and adoration that belongs only to God, even though those things are powerless to reward us. They are like the scarecrows in the cucumber patch. Yet we think that through money we will find safety, that our 401k will provide the security that we need instead of God, that how how do, we, might, we might possibly get sick and die and, and so we're worried and we, we have great fear in this time and, and we, we trust things and people which is what God said you must not do. We build up our list of possessions thinking that he who owns the most is the winner or we, st- we tend to look at our achievements and our record and we think, this is where I find my fulfillment and my satisfaction, then those things have become the idols because we give ourselves and our affections to that when God alone stands in that position. Why would we, why would we worship comfort or money or achievements or, in- or materialism or our own selves when those things cannot provide the things that God himself can? I like especially, I just flipped way too many pages, I like especially verse number 5 of the, of the verse, which concludes the verse about the scarecrows, when it says, don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Don't fear some other sort of god. God. They're all going to be gone. But it also says they cannot do you good. Those things will bring you no fulfillment or satisfaction. And several times in the passage, verse 6, there is none like you. Verse 10, God is the true and living God. Verse 16, not like those gods is our God. He is the one who formed all things. Just look at some of the things that are mentioned here. Idols are powerless. God stands alone and should alone be feared, for he is incomparable and great. He is beyond all others. He is the true and the living and the everlasting king. He is the creator and the sustainer by the power of his own words. And what we need cannot be supplied to us by the gods of this world. God alone can satisfy our desires. He is the one who gives us the living water that we might not ever thirst again. He is the bread of life. He is the one who is our satisfaction. Now, I hate ending mid-sermon, but what have we learned about God today? We have learned that this unique and great and powerful God will reach out in eagerness and hope that his people would repent. And when they do, he provides compassion. And there is a wideness in God's mercy. And God is sovereign in his whole story, doing all for his glory. So let us trust in the author who is sovereign, compassionate, faithful, powerful, unique, and the all-satisfying balm for our souls. Father, thank you so much for being this good and loving and great God. Thank you for teaching me about yourself and for providing the encouragement to me from your word. And I trust that the message was received with that same blessing in hopes that we would have a greater and wider and bigger and loftier view of you. For we would confess that our hearts are often cold and rebellious like the nation. And we are thankful that even when we are in sin, you reach out with forgiveness and mercy. And you desire to pluck us and plant us. Help us, God. And help me to play the part in the story that you have written without complaint, knowing that you are right. Help me to depend and us to depend and a God who is the satisfaction of our souls. Let us not lean on other things or people or ideas, but on You alone. Teach us to be dependent on Your grace and mercy. Build within our hearts a greater affection and worship. We stand in awe and in fear of you. We pray that the things we have learned about you would strengthen our faith and mature us to become more like Jesus Christ. And it's in his great and pure name we pray. Amen. Well, this concludes our service, and uh, we invite you to have fellowship. We have some hand sanitizer there.